turn to Mark chapter 11. See, Joe teaches in 2 Peter, and I'm studying in Mark, so guess who naturally goes to what book? Yep. Growing up, I had quite, a, quite an interesting experience from time to time. Not that I boast about it, but my family was in the industry in Hollywood, if you know what that means. My uncle was a writer and producer. And there's times I got a chance to actually get into some of the sets. And I spent a lot of time on Disney's lot and was able to see a lot of things just because I worked so close with the industry myself. But it was an interesting thing. I remember it was off season. I got a chance to go to the stage in the back lot of the scenes or the sets for the Waltons. And, you know, what you see in the TV ain't nothing like what it is, okay? I mean, yeah, yeah I hope you, if you've never done that, go see a back lot experience. I mean, Universal's got it. And get an idea of what that feels like. I remember we're down in the village of the Waltons. This is off season, so they're not filming. And you remember the Waltons pond thing? <laughs> it was dry. It only holds about two feet of water. And I looked at it, there's a canoe sitting there. And I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. And, you know, the houses, and, and you open the door and you think you're going to walk into the house and you're still outside. And what? You got this nice framing. And everything looks good. It's a false front. It's a facade. Okay? And to get you a little bit more, if you really want to have fun with this, you remember Walton's Mountain? <laughs> Walton's Mountain, you know what that is? Ready? Walton's Mountain, if you go up towards the top and on the surface that the cameras don't see, that is the cemetery. What's on the other side of the mountain? Hollywood sign. That's Walton's Mountain. It's fake. Everything about it. It's a false front. It's just, there's no, no substance. There's nothing there. But the interesting thing about it is, in today's text, we're going to take a look at the fact that what had been occurring inside the temple and occurring inside the intensity of the, the religion, the Judaism of that day was absolutely a big front and it was corrupt. And we're going to see God's judgment. Not only are we going to see God's judgment, we're going to see a preview of the judgment and we're going to see kind of an action of the judgment and remind that this judgment is for sure coming. So turn to Mark chapter 11. I'm going to read in the ESV. I know that's going to be like not word for word if you're in ASB, but I think we get the idea of what the text says. Let me start in, in verse 12. We'll go through 21. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard this. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables, the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. 
And he was teaching them and saying to them, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because of all the crowd was astonished at this teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. You know, in this text, we're going to see three scenes. One scene is going to be a fig tree. Next scene is an intense cleansing of a temple. And the third scene, the fig tree. All right, so scene one, the prediction of God's judgment by analogy. It's going to be a picture that we're going to see. We are after the triumphal entry of Jesus the day before. And verse 11 states, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Notice what he does here. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Interesting. Did nothing, went and looked. This is the creator God seeing what his temple has become. It's an evaluation. It's a critical evaluation. Now, Bethany was most likely the home of Mary and Martha or Lazarus. It was kind of the staging area where they would always retreat to. And as you read through the section of Mark, you'll see that Bethany ends up being that home base. Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem, maybe about a 30-minute walk. As Jesus is coming into the city to enter in the temple, this time he looks around to see and then just goes back. That's all the text gives you. Now in verse 12, it states that we are now the next day, okay? Jesus travels from Bethany past the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley. Okay, you start getting some geography going on here. And then up to the temple, up to Jerusalem. On his way, he's hungry. Why would he be hungry? He's probably spent the whole night in prayer. Dealing with what's going to go on the next day. He knows he's going through to clean the temple. So the intensity of what it's going to be and the conflict that it's going to create. But no doubt he was up all night in prayer and he was hungry. You notice that's also another one of those little pieces to say he was also 100% man. Full deity, full man. So he sees in the distance a fig tree. Kind of to me it almost sounds like it kind of stuck out because what is he right next to the Mount of what's that supposed to be loaded with with what kind of a tree olives would a fig tree kind of stick out I think so they're different looking so it would stick out we know the tree had leaves okay it's interesting again as you study the scriptures there's a reason why the Word of God gives you statements in detail it could have just said yeah tree fruit no Fig tree, leaves. There's reasons why the word's doing it. So dig deeper. And it was full of leaves. Impressive. 
you see it a distance, oh, oh, this thing's ready. This, oh, yeah, this is going to be a good tree. Interesting thing is, there should be some fruit on the tree because the leaves come after the, the fruit, the bare baby fruit starts. So it's fruit first, then leaves. So what he's seeing is a lot of leaves, there should be some fruit. It's not mature fruit. That's why it says it's not the season for the figs. So we're in March and April. That's the preseason. The tree's just coming out of the winter months. It's also the Passover. Now, you're not going to have the mature fruit until you get further down into August and October. That's why the scripture is clear to say leaves, but it's not the season for figs. So you know exactly where you're at. Again, detail as to what we're going on. So Jesus goes to this tree expecting to find what? Something. What's he find? No fruit. So finding no fruit, Jesus curses the tree. This is an amazing thing as you think about it, and you've got some heretics that have actually gone crazy on this. This is the, the only destructive miracle of Jesus. Now, where'd your brain just go? What other destruction? What, what are you thinking? Well, I don't know. There was a second one. Come on. Give that a wild guess. If the heretics pick on them, come on. Pigs? Destruction of the pigs. Well, did he curse the pigs? No. They willfully took off and drowned themselves, okay? But atheists have turned around and said, aha, you've got a violent Jesus. That, that, that's it. Wait a minute. Think about this for a second. Who created the tree? The fig tree. Okay, so the creator is standing in front of the fig tree. He's talking to it. He's having a conversation and cursing it because it has no fruit. And if a tree does not have fruit, what's its ultimate end anyway? It's going to be cut down and burned. Why? Because it's fruitless. You guys are really good. Come on, you, you got this. Why curse a tree? Okay, good question. This is an illustration to show you the condition of the temple. Remember, throughout the Old Testament, Israel is always classified as what? A fig tree. That they're the fig fruit. So they're, they're always, they should be productive. But this tree is not productive. Oh, it's showy. It looks good. It should have. It has nothing. Here's the issue. It's an illustration of the condition of the temple. The leaders, the people, and the whole nation. This is how far it's gotten. Not only are we concerned today with the church and the false teachers that come in and corrupt the church. Take a look at this. This is a situation where the leadership is corrupt. Worship is corrupt. We'll also notice where prayer is absolutely destroyed, where you should be in the temple to be able to have prayer, and that's ruined. So the cursing of the fig tree is a predictive judgment to come. And you think you're already in your head going, I think I know when that date was that they came. The fig tree had only the appearance of fruit, but was a false profession. 
the same as the worship in the temple. All false. Very showy. The temple was magnanimous, was amazing. But, so what? It's just a building. Nothing happening. You know, the, the amazing thing too, what was occurring on the temple, you should think about it deeply. Whatever's occurring inside the temple is going to be what's occurring in the people. Take a look at what Joe was talking about this morning, about what's occurring in these churches with false teachers. What's happening to the people themselves? They're led astray. They're false. They're corrupt themselves. They have no base of salvation. God will condemn not only the temple, but the leadership, the people, and the nation. That's coming. And if you also know, too, think back in your mind, how many times has that temple been destroyed? Oh, good question. Jesus was looking for some fruit as he desired to see true worship in the temple. Here's some examples of, if you think, well, this is kind of new. No, this is not new. Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, front service, okay, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. That's the condition. Ezekiel 33, 31. And they came to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. Does that sound like the false teachers that Joe just talked about? Is that out of uh, Ezekiel? That Matthew 15, 7 through 9. Jesus is saying this to the leaders. Remember this? You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's temple worship today. That's what it was. So the temple is the center point for Judaism. Where that goes, so does the whole faith, the whole nation. All right, short history. You guys remember the history of the temple? It's critical because he's going to destroy it. All right, Genesis 22. Remember that? What's happening? Abraham is told by God to take his son, his only son, to a specific place that would be revealed and go and sacrifice him there. What's that mountain? Anybody remember it? Moriah. Now keep that in your head. You know the event. God spares Isaac, provides a substitute ram in place of Isaac, and the ram was then sacrificed on Mount Moriah. That's key. That's a sacred mountain. That's a key point for Israel. Now move out about eh, 900 more years to about 988 B.C., and David purchases Mount Moriah from a man by the name of Ornan. Now, it was interesting. Ornan was going to just give it to David. David said, no, no, no. This is God's mountain, and I want this to be a legitimate transaction. I'm paying you. And it was kind of an insistent point, and finally he actually did pay for it. It's in 1 Chronicles 21. Now, David is not allowed to build the temple because he's a man of bloodshed. He's a warrior. So, the build was then passed down to 
his son, Solomon. Now, six years later, Solomon begins to build the temple on Mount Moriah. Notice it's a similar place. We're staying here. It's a massive constructed building. It's a series of buildings. The interesting thing about it, the Holy of Holies sits on the higher part of Mount Moriah. And as you come down that mount, so cascades the temple from the different, the court of the priest all the way down to the court of the nations, which is the large open area. So now we move out to about 638 BC, and the temple is now destroyed by Babylon, by King Nebuchadnezzar. Why? God's judging the leadership and the people for their apostasy, for their false worship. Carries them out, the judgment for their false worship, and so the temple is destroyed. Remember again, that which is occurring in the temple is also occurring in the lives of the people. Those two, as, as Rick Holland in his message, and I love the term and I don't use it enough, he says they, the relationship between the temple and the people is symbiotic. They're married together. Seventy years later, the people returned from Babylon to rebuild the temple. You remember that story, right? This work was enabled by Zerubbabel in 538. I love that name. I always have, you know. What was Zerubbabel responsible for? The rubble. That's how I remembered it, okay? <laughs> Do you guys ever remember years ago the walk through the Bible? We used to. Am I speaking to nobody that's gone through it? At Old Testament, where you had ways to kind of quickly, you know, the fall flood nations. Remember that? Oh, and you got to Zerubbabel because he dealt with the rubble of the. All right, well, for later. But the people spent their time and resources for 18 years. More afraid of the Syrian nation around them and everything. 18 years beautifying their stinking homes. And God goes, you have nice mahogany walls on, on your, your homes, but my house, look at it. So actually, the work again was delayed for 18 years, but began in 520. And it was completed. And it was, again, the older saints who were taken into captivity and knew what the old temple looked like, they kind of came back at the, the end of the, of the text, basically said, well, it's okay, but it's nothing like Solomon's temple. No, it wasn't. It was kind of much smaller and everything, but it was still a place that God could abide with his people. Second temple. We've got a ways to go here. About 500 years later, a pagan ruler named Antiochus desecrated the temple by erecting a statue to Zeus inside the temple and then slaughtered pigs on the altar. So now the temple was desecrated. Not destroyed, but it's now desecrated. It's not a holy place. Now there's a very short, slight revival that happens in the church. A little bit of worship starts to continue by the name of Judas Maccabees. But the apostasy and the false religion and the false worship just continued to prevail. Moving through the people. Now moving forward again to about 20 BC, King Herod, he's, he's an Idumean king. Actually got into the point of, we say it's a rebuild, but it's more like a remodeling. It's a remodel with an expansion and expanding the temple. This is what we call the third temple. 
It's an expansion remodel of the second temple to get to the new third temple. That rebuild occurred, lasted for 84 years. Believe it or not, that's from 20 BC, notice the date here, to 64 BC. This thing that Jesus is going to go through is still under renovation. It's still expanding. This temple will be ultimately destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans, led by Titus, level the temple, leaving not one stone on another. There's going to be a what? How many temples are we up to? Three. There's a fourth temple. When's that going to occur? Tribulation. Okay, and that will be desecrated. And then there will be a fifth temple, and that will be what time? That's the Millennial Kingdom. Okay, so we're looking at five, five total temples. The worship in the temple matches the worship of the leaders and the people. God's judgment, again, is cyclical. He will always judge the temple. Scene two, there comes the violent part. Here's the prophecy shown by action. We're going to visually see an example of what this destruction is going to look like. Jesus enters the temple. He enters the court of the nations. That's the lowest, most open part. That's the, or another term you could actually say is the court of the Gentiles. It was really designed as an area that all peoples, all nations could come and pray and worship. That's the purpose of this. The nation of Israel is to lead all nations to God. Well, you can see that they are not doing that. I mean, the Jews hated the Gentiles. So they were rejecting the nations instead of welcoming them in. This is the place that they all should be. Now, another thing, too, that we get into, this is the second cleansing of the temple. It's not the first. Some people have argued and said, well, there's if you read the two accounts, you read this in Matthew or you read it in the Mark, but then you read John 2, that's early in Jesus' ministry, he cleans it. It's been three years now. So when he comes and starts his ministry, he cleanses it. He's finishing his ministry, he cleanses it again. Notice the fact that it went right back to what it was before. There wasn't true repentance. Leadership let it go. Guess what? No fruit. David knew that the temple was a place of prayer and worship in Psalm 27, 14. One thing have I asked the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire his temple. Continuing in the text, in our text, in verse 15, it says, And they came to Jerusalem, and entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, he overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone. That's complex. That's a, a lot of detail going on there. He drove them out with a righteous anger because it kept saying, it's my father's house. As we look at this, I always think, have you ever gone through this section of scripture when he's tearing this place up and you're going, how come no one ever stopped him? You think about the intensity. Do you think this man, going generic, this man cleaning this temple out, flipping huge tables, they weren't Samsonite tables, they were huge, hewn tables, chairs, 
Everything was large with such intensity. Do you think it's the same as that guy that you see in these weird pictures, the long, nice, straight, non-Jewish hair, and he kind of looks kind of thin and emaciated and kind of scrawny? That's not Jesus. He's a man's man. He's an intense individual. He is believing deeply the conviction he has. And he's dealing with it. It's kind of a hit on us men at the same time. If there's convictions that you need to stand up for, no matter what the consequences. But again, I always thought it was amazing. No one stopped him. You know, at that time, it was big business, big profits. I mean, the leadership of the temple were getting big bucks, like the false teachers of today. Big bucks, right? Health, wealth, prosperity. The animals were overpriced. The money exchange was way higher than it should have been. It's amazing. And if you ever think about it, you come outside from Jerusalem you know, as we walk through each one of the steps, if you're coming here, you're, it's Passover, you're coming from other parts of the world with different currency, and when you come, you have to then have your currency changed to the temple shekel because you can only make the temple tax payment with a shekel, nothing else. So you went to a money changer. These money changers were jacking the price by 25%. Guess who was getting some of the cut off the edge? The leadership of the church. It was a business adventure. It was, that was it. And there was such disrespect for the temple that people were using it as a shortcut to get across town. The place that was supposed to be for prayer, for worship, to come to God, it just was a shortcut as a thoroughfare to go through. Look at all the things that Jesus did. He dealt with the people that were selling the animals at exorbitant prices. Down to the pigeons were what the poor people could afford. The money changers, he was, this place was absolute chaos. But again, it's God cleaning his temple out. Even to the point to the detail of saying, guess what? You're not coming through here. This is not a shortcut. This is serious business. This is worship. It is to be a house of prayer. Now, notice, picture in your mind, absolute total chaos. This is a huge area. He's gone from stem to stern, flipped everything. This place is an absolute living disaster. And then in verse 17, it just goes, dead silence. What's Jesus do? And he was teaching them and saying to them, as it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Makes sense. But you have made it a den of robbers. You're thieves. And it moves a little further, and as he's cleaning out, you've got the religious leaders. They're trying to do everything they can because they're shocked. Verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes, the crime guys, remember, heard it. And were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowds was astonishing. Now understand, take a little bit of a note and understand the word destroy. It's much deeper than what you and I might think, saying they just want to kill him. It's deeper than that. 
They want to do more than just kill him. They want to absolutely discredit him and defame him and shred him before the people. So their loyalty, because right now their loyalty is for Jesus, they need their loyalty to come back to them. And don't worry, in a few days, besides the day before they were praising him as he was entering the town on a colt, in a few days they will be calling to crucify him. Oh, they, they think they won because they did turn the loyalty and they will kill him. That didn't end it. And at this point, Jesus just leaves and goes back to Bethany. We have no dialogue on what people are thinking at this point, but he's gone through second time, cleansed the temple, no one's gone after him, and he just leaves. Leaves you something to think about. So we've seen Jesus' full deity when he's cursed his own creation as an analogy, and we also see his deity in the wrath when he cleansed the temple. We see his full humanity, and we also see his deity. But that is a place of prayer. Third scene. It's a short one. Now the prophecy is realized. This is happening. This is coming. Not only has there been an analogy to say what is going to happen because of the fig tree being cursed, but you have what Jesus just went through in cleansing the temple. Verse 20. And they passed by in the morning. This is the next day. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Key point. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. What did Peter just put together? The two, two and two together? The curse is coming. It's an absolute. It wasn't just curse that came away and maybe someday that tree's going to go down. No. And interesting too, the idea is the fact that this tree was, was destroyed and cursed and withered from the roots up. How in the world would you know that the roots are affected? There must have been some massive tumultuous event that occurred that shredded and and painfully buckled this tree to its destruction. I mean, you can only imagine what, what occurred, but no one was there. Yeah, Peter was listening and he did put it all together and he affirmed that what the Lord had cursed will come to pass. Remember when Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it. What was he talking about? Was he talking about the temple? No, he's talking about himself in three days in the resurrection. What did they think he was talking about? The temple. Missed that one too, guys. The temple will be destroyed because of the corruption. No worship, no fruit. And it was destroyed by Titus in 70 AD. No stone was ever on. There's never been a temple since. What's sitting there right now is the mosque that's not going to be there much longer either the warning is still on the church as well as you read the seven churches in revelation if they become corrupt what does the scripture say that god will do they'll remove the lampstand the light and there's a lot of churches that were listed in those that don't exist today they're gone Lampstand removal is more than just the lights are out. It's done. One pastor, I saw quoting of this section, he said, what happens 
And God's places of worship is critical. God is holy in His temple and His church. So what do we do with this text today? How do we take this into the 21st century? Another pastor was quoted, and I thought this was kind of bringing it closer. What about worship? Yeah, what about worship? True worship is possible, not at the temple, makes sense, but only at the cross. Yes, only at the cross, only through the cross. There is no other place to go. Let me ask you this. When you come to Lakeside, do you take serious your worship? Just think to first service and everything around that. Just spend a little time. This is you and the Lord. Does preparation for worship on Sunday begin Saturday night? I know my wife's like, Rick Holland pounded that into us as uh, high school and and, uh, college staff with (laughs) constant But that makes sense. I mean, we need as adults, we need to do the same thing. Do you stay up too late? Watch late movies and, you know, or, okay, fine. You read too late? No, never mind. Do you prepare your heart and confess any sin before worship? Before you even arrive? What is your conversation in the morning with the Lord? Now notice another thing too. All of the service is worship. Believe this or not down to the announcements. Why? I hear a lot of people chattering during the announcements, don't you? What are they missing? Opportunities to serve or to pray for the needs of others. That is still worship. From the time we walk in the door, you might say, the time we leave, that is our corporate worship together under God. We need to be mindful of the seriousness of worship. Do you come with an open heart to learn God's word for yourself? How many times have I sat there and went, oh, wow, I wish so-and-so's listening to this because, man, they really need this. (laughs) Yeah, you do too, dude, so shush about someone else. Listen. Biggest catch, what you hear, apply it. Don't just walk out the door and go... Okay, I got my church for the week. I'm fine. No, you're not. I know. You hear me over and over. Take notes. Why? So you go home, you got something to study during the week to, what, drive it in. Unless you're one of those perfect human beings that once you hear it, you got it. Life's changed, right? I always ask this question. Because you've been in the Word this week, what's changing? Isn't that better than asking someone, what have you read this week? So what? You can read something. You read a novel. You read whatever. You read the Bible like a novel. But is it changing you? Then it's getting in if it's changing you. So think about this. We come to worship. Let's pray. Father, in our thoughts, we're probably thinking right now that there's a whole lot of not worship going on because our hearts are not prepared, we're distracted. We probably didn't come this morning fully prepared to receive your word. But that's a good lesson for us. That's good for us to learn because the teaching 
of your cursing of the fig tree and you cleansing the temple helps us to have some visual understanding of how serious it is for us to be true worshipers. Yeah, you'll destroy any church. Maybe not today, but in the end it will be fully destroyed if there's no true worship there. God, help us to be mindful of what true worship is, to be focused on you, focused on your word. And please help us to stay away from the distractions that we're sitting in, in church. It's, you know, what's for lunch? What are we going to do? All the plans. God, there's so many things that are distractions. Help us to be mindful of where we are, who we are sitting before, and help us to be true worshipers of you that we will grow, mature, and learn. God, we are so thankful for your patience with us that we want to be true worshipers, so teach us that way. Help us to learn from the fig tree and from the cleansing of the temple that you're serious about it. God, we love you and are so thankful you care for us. In Jesus, amen.